and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 89, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And I can't believe this, for the second week running, we're recording this show early in the morning on the weekend. On a Sunday, Dan, we're up on a Sunday. I didn't know there was two ten o'clocks in a Sunday. <laughs> Not normally awake this early. No, no, I'm, I'm used to being up late, you know, being a sound engineer. I'm never up on the Sunday. I'm in the shadows, in the dark at four in the morning. You're normally crawling in from, from some sleazy party right about now, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> but the reason we're doing it is just because, I mean, the next couple of weeks are going to be so manic. I mean, you know, even forgetting the fact that I'm getting married in, you know, two weeks today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like, you know, the least important thing right now. Obviously, next week, we're going to be in London for the um, this really exciting Guardian talk. They're going to be doing... Sega Mega Drive versus SNES. Oh, with Violet Berlin. Oh, it's going to be great. Can't You're wait. You're finally going to get to meet Violet Berlin, Revy. Yeah, and also shout stuff at uh, Nintendo fans. <laughs> <laughs> it should be good. Well, that's going to be coming up on Thursday night at the Guardian HQ in London, so we're going to be going down for that. Um, if there are some tickets left, we'll put a link on our website. And then, speaking of massive events, this is, can't believe it's only like less than a month away now, we are proud to announce that we are once again going to be hosting the talk stage at Play Expo. Now, this time, it's the big one in Manchester. I'll just try and set the picture for you. It's outside the Trafford Centre, which is giant itself. Big central shopping centre in Manchester. And then it's like this kind of giant aircraft hangar, basically. It's massive. Event City, it's called, isn't it? Yeah. And it is a city. It's full of kind of games, cosplay people, arcade units, even cars. You know, they had the Transformer cars drove in there last time. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, we've been going, this will be our third year that we've gone. And it is when you walk in there, it is like a geek's paradise. Isn't it? You walk in, it's like, whoa. I remember when we first went, you know, both of us were just like, oh my God. We we didn't believe that there was an event in the UK that would be this big yeah. for gaming, you know. Because we've been to a couple before, like small ones held in like little village hall and that kind yeah. of thing. But It's just mind blown when you go in there, totally. When you walk in there and there's, you know, loads of different sections, so... Usually the, the stage that we're going to be hosting on is when you first walk in. You'll mm. see that straight away. Yeah. Loads of chairs all laid out. Proper stage. You know, it's like, like doing a rock concert, isn't it, when you're yeah. in there? And then all the traders are in the middle. And this is the area where you can come along. And, I mean, we're talking prices at these events. Always way better than eBay. But you could buy loads of stuff. There's like all the kind of memorable stuff memorabilia and then there's like weapons there's like (laughs) you know kind of the rarest games there's uh loads of art created around it and it's really nice actually and then there's a whole retro section as well so there's there's kind of the new companies representing stuff as well they had team 17 there last time cinemaware all of those guys and there's always a like an old obscure computer section as well in the middle with like you know these systems that you've never heard of or you've never used for years some really odd stuff and of course one of the main attractions of the event, the free-to-play arcades. Well, we always go with our friends, don't we? Like Joe, Richard, Alex, and as soon as they go near the arcades, they seem to just get absorbed. We lose them. (laughs) They're just gone (laughs) into these machines. Can't find them for the rest of the event, you know. I think, yeah, Alex and Joe were playing Point Blank last year, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, House of the Dead as well. They were playing it, then they are coming off it, queuing again for it, playing it, coming off it, queuing again for it. So, I mean, that in itself, if you you went to an arcade and put a quid into each one of these machines, the ticket price itself covers that, yeah. yeah. So we're going to be down there hosting uh, a few of the talks, we're going to be hanging around all weekend. I think the headline one for us is going to be, oh my God, I'm so excited about this, the Cygnosis reunion. I'm, I'm going to be wearing my Cygnosis t-shirt on this one because it's just so good. And 
you know, we've got Mike Clark there, and he kind of went in as a young boy and then came out a man. It was, was, like, was he like a YTS scheme or something? Yeah, yeah, he was it, really yeah. young when he joined, and the the whole period of Cygnosis, they kind of started with the Amiga, and then they came out with the PlayStation at the end. It was like Wipeout and, you know, giant titles like that. Well, they got absorbed by Sony, didn't they? Yeah, and... G, please. Do you remember that one? Oh, mate, the, the, the yeah, kind of flying game. one, yeah. Colony Wars as well. I mean, even go back to the Amiga Lemmings, Shadow of the Beast games as well. Yeah, yeah. So this is, when do you ever get all these guys together in a room talking about those days? No, it's crazy. And uh, there's going to be plenty more as well. We've got coders, musicians, graphic artists. So. Well, well, there's another thing going on, which is um, kind of GoldenEye's anniversary, isn't it? I can't believe that GoldenEye's 20 years old this year. It's absolutely <laughs> mad. And... You know, David Doak's going to be there from Rare, and we've had him on, and also Paul Jury, who's like one of our good friends yeah. from Retro Gamer. Well, this is going to be the N64 GoldenEye 20th anniversary panel, so obviously you get the story of the creation of the game. Uh, David and the guys are going to be there. I've also heard there's going to be a chance to uh, maybe challenge them. Oh, Golden <laughs> Gun. That would yeah. oh, be great, yeah. <laughs> if they lose, that's going to be some egg on their face, isn't so it? So embarrassing. And they're probably... <laughs> You know, they skinned a lot of the staff into Goldeneye. So yeah. you could probably play Dr. Doak. Yeah. <laughs> and beat him in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the Sunday, if you love the Spectrum, there was a massive Spectrum talk. I love the name, Specky Sunday. Ah, oh, that's, that's a great, great name, yeah. Well, there is this uh, new movie coming out, Memoirs of a Spectrum Addict. Jim Bagley's going to be on stage. I mean, you couldn't have a Spectrum panel without Bagley. No, Bagley's. no, and you could have any talk about the Spectrum next as well without Jim Bagley. And you're going to get to see uh, a little glimpse of this movie as well. So if you love the Spectrum, do not miss this. And we're in talks to get a few more panels organised as well that we'll uh, let you know about over the next couple of weeks. But seriously, if you love retro gaming, this is the biggest retro gaming event every year in the UK. And it happens on the weekend of October 14th and 15th in Manchester at Event City. And if you can't make it down, I mean, we do have listeners all around the world. We'll obviously be recording the talks. Yeah, YouTube putting it on YouTube and everything. Uh, we're awful at recording stuff usually, <laughs> so uh, we're going to have 20 microphones everywhere <laughs> just to capture it. We can't, we can't not record this one. No. But what's even better than listening to it on YouTube or the show is coming along and checking it out in person because, I mean, essentially this is the Retro Hour Live, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So should we give away some weekend passes? Oh, totally, yeah. How are we going to do it? We're going to do a comp or just pull it out of the hat? I reckon we make this as easy as possible. So what you've got to do, if you'd like to win a pair of weekend passes, that's you and a friend, can come along. You can get them for free on the Saturday and the Sunday. You get to check out all the talks. All the games for free, yeah. Absolutely. Have a night out in Manchester afterwards as well. So The arcade club, that's always a good place to go afterwards. Plenty of stuff to do in Manchester. So if you want to come along, here's what you've got to do. Nip onto our website, theretrohour.com. Fill in the form that you'll find there on the front page. We're not going to set a question. Let's make this dead easy. Drop your details in there. Get all your friends to do it as well. Then what we're going to do, we're going to keep this open for a fortnight. We'll close it at midnight on October 6th. So two weeks today at the time the show comes out. And then we'll pick out four winners. And you will each win a pair of weekend passes to come along for free to play Expo in Manchester. You lucky guys. Can't say fairer than that, can we? No. So check it out right now. All the terms and conditions you'll find and the form to enter that on our website, theretrohour.com. Now, before we mention this week's very special guest, we want to say thank you so much to the people who allow us to do the show every week, to do events like Play Expo in Manchester, and just keep doing the Retro Hour. I mean, we're getting towards our second birthday on the show now. It's crazy. And, you know, we've had a few comments about how the quality of guests has been absolutely amazing. Well, uh, we're just going to keep doing that and keep bringing you fantastic guys. And it's all thanks to your donations and help that we can do it. Absolutely. So uh, thank you so much this week, making donations to the Retro Hour podcast and making the Hall of Fame 
Graeme Thompson. Brenda Stones. Damien Page. And Dan Ryan. Who all made donations this week. Thank you so much, guys. If you'd like to do the same, we've got a little tip jar that you'll find on the front page of our website, either via PayPal or Bitcoin at theretrohour.com. And we've got that much going on. We haven't even mentioned the guest yet. And to oh be fair... Oh, my God. And this guest as well, Dan. <laughs> it's fantastic. And... You know, we had Ian Livingston last week, and he's just an amazing founder of a company. But also, we've got Ian Stewart this week, another Ian, but he's the founder of Gremlin. And these were a massive European games house. You know, they they published Monty on the Run on the C64, Alvida Zen Monte, if you remember that as well. Lotus, Zool, Supercars. I used to love the Lotus games, and Zool as well, Zool 1 and 2 on the Amiga. That's the kind of sound. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. So he's going to be our special guest talking about those amazing games. Some really good memories. I mean, you know, if you kind of were like us and you played all those games back in the day on the C64 and the Amiga, do not miss this. Ian Stewart, founder of Gremlin, is coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. That's some very interesting news this week. You know, last week we were talking all about, um, you know, Zap 64 and Commodore Former. You know, we've been talking about magazines and that recently. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you spotted this, and I've got to say a huge thank you to our good friend Warren, who works at Future Publishing, who uh, kindly provided us with a couple of copies of this. Superplay magazine is back. Oh, now I never knew about Superplay because I assume it was one of those kind of Nintendo magazines because the only one I ever heard about was Nintendo Power because Dave Perry would go on Games Master. Yeah. It'd always be Dave Perry of (laughs) Nintendo Power. But um, did you know much about Superplay? Well, you said my friend Martin used to buy it because he was a big like Super Nintendo fan back in the day and it was by Future Publishing. Um, Okay. It ran from 1992 to 1996. Uh, British magazine, and there was actually, I think it was 48, no, 47 issues they made back in the day. And the magazine stopped, obviously, when the, the Super Nintendo started winding down in 1996. But now, over 20 years later, you can finally get your hands on issue number 48. Ah, so they're actually, they've, they've continued it from the uh, run. Oh, yeah. that's, that's really cool. And what's amazing is, I mean, this is included for free in the current issue of Retro Gamer magazine. Oh, I just bought the last one as well. <laughs> I should try and get the next one. Well, you've got you've got a copy anyway, right? Yeah. Warren sorted us out with a couple. So if you go out and get um, issue number 172 of Retro Gamer, you'll find inside a very special one-off edition of Superplay. Now, the reason they brought it back is obviously with the um, SNES Mini coming out. Ah, okay, yeah. Nice little tie-in there. And what they've done, though, is actually they've got a lot of the original team together, the original writers, and they've even got the original guy who used to do all the artwork and everything. So it looks like... I mean, I got this in the post of Warren. And before I read his note, I was like, what, has he sent me some like, old magazines that they used to do? It, even the paper quality and everything, oh, the wow. art and the articles, it actually looks like it could have been like made in 1994. That's the great thing about future publishing. They seem to be kind of bang on with getting the uh, accuracy. You know, if, if someone was going to go, oh, the new NES is out, we're going to release a magazine at the moment, uh, you know, it, they may not do it to that high quality. Yeah. But... Getting the original writers in, geez, that's real dedication. Well, you can tell, I mean, they've got Will Overton, who used to do all the artwork for the original 47 issues, and he's done the Star Fox 2 on the front of this. Yeah. Uh, but even, like, the layout and everything. And it's funny, you open it up inside, and it's like, you know, next issue will be out, and it says, hmm, don't know, maybe tries in 2047. <laughs> that's <laughs> so funny. But it's, you know, just the fact that a ma- an amazing magazine from back in the day is back for 
a continuation, which is like just nuts, isn't it? Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I bet the fans are through the roof with that. Oh, dude, it's just you think of other magazines you'd love to see back, maybe like, you know, Amiga Format one day or Mean Machines or something. Or that's, Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few. Yeah, so, I mean, do not miss this if you love, um, you know, those, those old mags. Even for someone who maybe wasn't even into the Super Nintendo that much, it's just a really nostalgic read. And Retro Game is a good read in itself anyway every month, isn't it? So look out for that in your local news agents right now. Now, speaking of Nintendo, we obviously mentioned the SNES Mini there. You know, last year, everybody was trying to get their hands on a NES Mini. Feverish, wasn't it? And they kind of, I remember all the prices on eBay just going through the roof and kind of people buying them up, pre-ordering them and then hoarding them. <laughs> that was the uh, kind of way that they went. And scalpers. Yes. Yeah, who were like, you know, trying to rip people off on eBay. I remember them going into like CEX. Yeah. And I think they were selling them for about 120 quid, 130 quid. 135, yeah. yeah. I remember seeing them put up for that much. And I was thinking, really? Yeah. If you don't want to pay that much money for it, good news is Nintendo have now realised that there is a big demand for this. And I don't think anyone saw this coming. They're actually going to be bringing out the NES Mini again in 2018. Oh, wow. Because I heard a lot of people say, oh, this is the only run. And they've, they've done this deliberately, a small amount of stock just to make it a rare item or something. But they've probably gone... Oh, maybe we could get a bit more out of that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Why don't Nintendo have the money rather than some eBay scalpers? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at Twitter here as well. I mean, they haven't given many details. It was a tweet that came out on um, 12th of September. It said, we'll also be bringing back the, the classic Nintendo NES Mini back to Europe next summer. More information will be shared in the future. And they put a picture of it up. Uh, <laughs> the top retweeted tweet after that is, it's as if hundreds of scalpers on eBay suddenly cried out in terror and was suddenly silenced. I feel like something lovely has happened. <laughs> so there you go. If you want to get your hands on one, um, it's cool because obviously they're bringing out the SNES Mini. Yeah. Now the NES Mini is going to be alongside it. Probably the N64 Mini next year, let's the, be honest. The full range, mini yeah. everything. So we'll keep you up to date on that as we hear more. Now obviously the Spectrum is uh, kind of going through a huge revival at the moment. We mentioned this um, talk that's going to be happening at Play Expo. And there is actually another event coming up. It's called Spectrum 35. Now this is to celebrate 35 years of the ZX Spectrum. 35 years since it originally came out. And it's going to be held at, I mean we've had these guys on the show before, the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge. Ooh, interesting. Uh, there may be a, a Clive might walk by, you never know. Well guess who's going to be there? Jim, oh, Jim Bagley. Bagley. <laughs> of course, Jim's <laughs> going to be there. Uh, Jonathan Cordwell as well. He's He's been on the show. He's a really good guy. The Oliver Twins. Yeah, oh, fantastic. They're going to be there too. Um, Rick Dickinson is going to be there too. He's Jared original Bentley designer. as well. Yeah. You know, if you love the Spectrum, I mean, this is again, you know, you're pretty much spoiled for choice if you're a Spectrum fan at the moment. And this is coming up on Saturday, the 28th of October. So it's only a couple of weeks away. Um, held in Cambridge, starts at 10am. So we'll put all the details for that on our show notes at theretrohour.com. You love trackers, don't you? I absolutely love trackers, yeah. What's your favourite tracker? Ooh, that's a nice question. I would say Optimed Sound Studio, even though uh, a lot of people don't like it because it had extra features in. But yeah, it's just the one I use the most, so I'm the most used to it. Was that the one where you could have like 16 channels or something? Yeah, you could (laughs) slow down half the tempo and then have like, yeah, ridiculous amounts. And it had a built-in synthesizer and editor yeah now obviously you can run like those old trackers like you know pro tracker or noise tracker and all them things yeah. in emulation but maybe a lot of people that might want to make you know these kind of like c64 and NES and amiga style chip tunes on a modern machine okay well there is now a new tracker oh that's just been released called Clyde's track Clyde's track because i know there was this open md thing which was uh, another tracker but 
this looks really cool. This looks very much of the Pro Tracker ilk, like the, the, the fonts of it and the look. Oh, yeah, very nice. I should put a few little clips of the music that's been made in it. Skip forward a bit. Yeah, you see now this, this is a more kind of traditional tracker. So there's there's like two two worlds of tracker. Yeah. You have one where it's uh, the original samples and the original kind of synths. And then you have sampled trackers where you've got your, all your 8-bit samples. This sounds a lot more like you're using the original kind of SID chip. Yeah, well, I mean, it does load samples as well by the looks of it, yeah. But I think it's... Um... Yeah, it's very much synth-based, isn't it, by the sounds of it, yeah. But it does sound like a, a SID chip. It's very nice. Yeah, so if you want to download that, it's completely free, um, and it's available for uh, Windows, and they're doing, like, a Linux version of it as well, I think. Oh, nice. So I'll put that link in our show notes as well. So it's, like, it's just cool because that style of music's coming back big style now, isn't it? Totally. Like, I'm going to an event, the Digital Musical, uh, Digital Music Festival. Another event. <laughs> Another event, yeah. This is the uh, Digital Music Festival, which is on the 30th of September. This is at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. And it's going to be cool. They're going to have kind of, you know, C64 audio will be there. There's going to be loads of people DJing and mixing and playing about. So pop along if you want. Absolutely. So we'll put all that in uh, our events calendar that's getting there <laughs> rather packed at the moment on getting our website, isn't up. it? Yeah, we're not going to have any time to do the show, Dan. We'll just be on road constantly. We, you know what we need? We need a tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> or a Robin Reliant. A retro a Robin yeah. Reliant. Got to be, or, or a DeLorean or something. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> powered by a C64 that keeps crashing. I think Ro- <laughs> you have to Ro- reset it. Robin Reliant's a bit more British, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if anyone wants to donate, wants to the Sinclair C5. <laughs> Trip behind you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the battery, I've got to charge it. <laughs> So thank you for checking out episode number 89 of the Retro Hour podcast. Check out all the events calendar on our website and download the show again next week from theretrohour.com. Right then, let's talk about those classic games, the Monty series, Lotus, Zool, Supercars. Our special guest this week is Ian Stewart, the founder of Gremlin. And we'll see you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Thank you for joining us, Ian Stewart. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Now, I'm sure we're going to get some really interesting stories about your time at Gremlin and games like Lotus and Zool and all these classics that Ravi and I grew up playing. But I thought it might be quite interesting to just kind of go back to day one. This is a question that we always like to ask just to get the grey matter working a little bit. What was your first ever computer experience then? Do you remember when you first saw like computers or a game? Um, yeah, well, I, I think my, my first experience was when I was working in Lasky's and uh, um, we we opened an in-store unit called MicroDigital and uh, all of a sudden we were we, we were asked to be selling things like uh, Apple II computers and uh, uh, Sharp MZ80Ks and uh, further to that uh, Spectrums and Commodores, etc. So that that was when when it, when it was really introduced to me. In truth, I only knew about computers prior to that, about uh, going into this rather large room with uh, lots of very large tape machines whirring round and uh, being operated by punch card operators. Well, um, what was the first computer that you actually owned? Like your first home computer? Crikey. What was my first? It was, it was, it was probably an, an Amstrad uh, word processor. Like one of yeah. those uh, yeah. IBM clones or one of these? Yeah, yeah, yeah. PWC or something, I think it was called. Yeah, they, yeah. they ran WordStar. I remember that was the older <laughs> big processor, wasn't it? Mr. 
August 1st foray into endeavouring to eke pounds out of the computer market. Some of those machines were right, the Amstrad ones as well. I remember like, you know, the CPC range and those machines actually... Yeah, they're pretty decent home computers, weren't they, back then? Well, they were. They mm. were. You know, they, I, I suppose realistically, there wasn't a fantastic amount of competition mm. around at that time. You know, their, their main competitor was the Spectrum, of which, if you put the two side by side, you'd have prob- probably gone for the CPC. Well, you know, you mentioned the, the computer shop then. That, that was based in Sheffield, wasn't it? That was, yeah, that was after I left Lasky's, and mm. I, I opened a, a retailer's called Just Micro. So why Sheffield then? Because your accent doesn't sound like you're from that area. No, no, I'm from Surrey. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, I moved, I, I served uh, an engineering apprenticeship in Surrey and, uh, and decided that uh, I didn't like the smell of uh, oil and uh, coming home filthy dirty every night. So I <laughs> had, had a change of career, and that career took me to Northampton and then from Northampton to Sheffield with Laskis. That, that, was, that was where we, we sort of started. I'd recognised uh, when I worked at Lassie's there was an opportunity to sell software, which a lot of the high street people weren't doing. So I decided to give up my uh, area manager's job and uh, and th- throw, throw my uh, my ball into the ring as far as uh, starting off my own business. So that was that was how Just Micro came about. And it was a very, very popular place in Sheffield. The weekends it used to get a haven. It was horrible in there. It was only a tiny shop, and uh, when you get a hundred smelly youths in there, it was quite unpleasant. <laughs> quite unpleasant at times. <laughs> Must have been exciting as well, though. Oh, it was. It was because it was the start of everything, really. And that's you know from that point on, you know we we used to have regulars coming in and bringing in their own little programs they'd written, etc. Well, uh, you started a small team in Sheffield because people were kind of displaying graphics on the computers, and you thought, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, but it, it it was it, it wasn't it wasn't only that. I'd, I'd seen an opportunity. Um, Imagine Software was started off started up in um, in Liverpool, and I knew the guys that started up, and I I was seeing how successful they they were becoming. I thought, well, now there's got to be an opportunity there as well. So we started looking for people, and obviously they were, because we had the shop there on our doorstep, so we embraced them and. Uh, that was how things got uh, got started, as far as Gremlin was concerned. So, what were those like initial early days like at Gremlin? Then, what what kind of culture did you have? Oh, it was it was very relaxed. Um, it, in truth, you know, at, at that point in the marketplace, you're sort of you're making the rules up yourself. You know, there are no rules to follow. There are only a certain name of, uh, number of games out on the market, so you're you're looking at the competition and you're you're seeing where you can take it from there. It was uh, it was it, it was exciting times, and and obviously. You've got young programmers working on sort of uh, processes that didn't have an awful lot of power. They, they really did do a great job of squeezing a lot out of those processes. Why the name Gremlin Graphics? I have no idea. It, just, <laughs> <laughs> it, it came about, we were, we were looking for a name and uh, we'd, we'd spotted this, this Gremlin character in, uh, and I can't remember where it was, but uh, it, we just adopted it and it, it, it sort of went on from there really. It all struck me that you didn't actually do a game based around a gremlin, did you? No, it just never happened. You know, strangely enough, I don't think we ever, we ever talked about it either. Okay, a bit too obvious, maybe, wouldn't it? <laughs> it yeah, yeah. And if it had been a flop, then you know it wouldn't would have, wouldn't have stood the company in, in a very good position, really. Well, you started on the eight bits and Specky and C sixty four, kind of with games like Monty Mole, which was a fantastic game. It had a great British style of humour and kind of humbleness. Were you aiming for that? Um, yes. Well, being, being from Sheffield, uh, the story behind that product, it was 
created by um, Pete Harrop, whose father was a miner. And it was at the time of the miners' strike. It was one of those situations where um, we just we we just start putting two and two together, and and we were coming up with four with four. And Arthur Scargill ended up going in the game, and you had to topple Arthur Scargill by collecting ballot papers. So <laughs> it, it gave us an opportunity. It gave us a real opportunity locally of, of gaining some coverage. And in the end, I think I think we ended up with about eleven minutes of prime news time. Even Tread, Tread McDonald, and finally, we made one night, which uh, is a claim to fame for Monty Mole. I mean, you actually used Monty in quite a few games. It was the, you know, the, the trilogy really. Monty on the run after his end, Monty as well. I mean, did you expect to be using him so much? He kind of became like an early kind of British video game mascot, really. It did, yeah. But obviously, at that time, it was all you know the whole thing was fairly new to us all. So it was it was a case. Well, if, if something's successful, then we'll stick with it. And we'll have another go. And that, that was the attitude. But you know, as time moved on, you then realised that you did actually have the opportunity of creating a, creating characters, creating, creating brands, etc. Well, the, the music, uh, especially on the uh, last two, is kind of famous worldwide, and that was by Rob Hubbard. Um, how yeah. did you guys meet and start working together? Well, I'm pretty sure that we, we'd have heard some of Rob's stuff previously and got in touch with him. I, I seem to remember. I, I remember him coming up to Sheffield and us looking at the projects, etc., talking about them. And uh, yeah, we worked with Rob on a number of projects, and he was the best out there at the time, without a doubt. I mean, even to this day, Rob is still generally regarded as like you know probably the most talented Commodore sixty four musician. I mean, did he kind of spot that early on? Did you his his talent? Um, well, yes, yes, without a doubt, without a doubt, he was he was our turn to turn to musician as in the. Uh, in the early days of the, the Commodore 64. Well, Thing on a Spring was uh, quite an innovative game, and that showed a lot of kind of advancements that were made in 8-bit gaming around that time, um, with physics and that kind of thing involved in it. I mean, did, did you enjoy that title, and was it quite a, a, a tough project to work on? No, no, it wasn't a tough project. I was working with Jason Perkins, and mm-hmm. Jason's a really easy guy to work with. And it was a, it, it was a great game. It was one of my favourite games in the early days. Um, I think it was because I could play it. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least I thought I could. When I watched when I watched the kids playing it, then it sort of put me in my place, really. But um, no, I I enjoyed I I liked the character, and uh, and I liked the game, and it's uh, yeah, it, it proved one of our one of our best Commodore sixty four games. Well, actually, you made an interesting point there. I mean, were you much of a games player yourself? In all honesty, no. I was more on the business side. I, you know, I came from a, a number of years with Laskers, but it was I I come from a management background, so. Uh, I got involved in the games and I got involved in the characters, but um, I, w- I was not, I couldn't say I was a games player. Well, in 1990, Impossimal came around and uh, that was fantastic with the soundtrack by Barry Leach, but it was a bit of a different style of platforming than Monty. Um, what was the yeah. reaction like to the game at this time? Not, not particularly positive. I, th- I, think, I think people didn't really understand why we'd, why we'd taken it to to that stage as far as the development of the character was concerned. Um, didn't work particularly well. Yeah, yeah, not not Monty's sort of most glorious moment, really. I mean, were there any titles around that time in, like, you know, the um, the 8-bit kind of days that kind of progressed and maybe got shelved because they weren't working due to limitations of the technology or any titles that just didn't make it out the door very often? There were, yeah. The titles used to get canned for various reasons, whether, whether it was it just wasn't working as far as the game was concerned or... Um, there was an issue with the subject matter, or it, it was it was a case case of you know if it really didn't work, then you shouldn't really put it out there. And you know we, we did can projects, 
you know, and you look back on it sometimes, you think, well, you know, you, we could have counted it earlier or whatever, but Beaver Bobbing Damn Trouble didn't make it out, which has been written by Christian Urquhart. It, it just wasn't going anywhere as far as the product was concerned. It wasn't particularly a reflection on Christian. It just, just wasn't going anywhere as far as the game. We got, we, got, we got stuck on that one. And that happens. You know, you have a concept, you try it, you try it again, and then again, if it doesn't work, then you've got to be brave enough to say, right, let's, uh, let's not move ahead with this one. So at what point did you guys decide to enter the kind of 16-bit market and also rebrand as a Gremlin Interactive? Well, the 16-bit market, it was, you know, really, it's forced upon you because the market was changing. So your, the sales on the 8-bit products were, were diminishing. Obviously, with the 16-bit uh, the market, getting a lot of support out there from Atari and Commodore. Used to enjoy going going down to Commodore. Uh, we had probably had a closer relationship with Commodore than we did Atari. It was always a, a fight to try and get your products included in the packs. Ocean always did a fantastic job of doing that. They had uh, they had obviously licenses that they were attaching to their products at that time, which gave them a, uh, an advantage. But uh, we managed to get uh, we managed to get Zool in the pack. Well, there's one Amiga and ST game that I remember everybody had. Um, you know, regardless of being in the pack or not, it was that good was uh, Lotus Esprit Turbo. And, you know, the, the speed in that game, it was like, it was a revolutionary title at the time. How did you get the Lotus tie-in, and what did they make of the game when you showed it to them? The, the product came from Magnetic Fields, and uh, they approached us with um, a racing game. And at that time, it was, I think it was, it was when licensing, uh, putting li- attaching licenses to products were just becoming popular. And uh, we wanted the product to stand out from the others. It was a case of going over to Norwich to see the Lotus people and see their marketing people, show them what we've got, and uh, you know they they took the bait and uh, you know we we managed to to close a deal as far as the license was concerned, and it was it was one of the best tie-ups we've ever had. I know before that Outrun kind of had like a Ferrari in there, but it was never branded as like a Ferrari game. I mean, I imagine getting yeah. such a big kind of prestigious company was that quite an expensive license? No, no. No, no more expensive than um, other licenses out there. It was, it was in the ballpark of single-digit, high-single-digit di- percentages and uh, you know moderate guarantees. No, nothing outrageous. They were really pleased to, to see the, the product out there with their their cars featured. I mean, I remember every kid at school. It's like when we grow up, we're going to buy a Lotus. <laughs> so, you know, that was always a dream after playing those games. It's, yeah, well, it's not happened yet. Was... <laughs> Well, yeah, they're probably a bit quieter than they were. They had some great cars, didn't they? We had some great track days with them. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Well, the music, the music was uh, just fantastic. Like, even if I put it on in my car at the moment, I'd probably start speeding because it's just I know that, <laughs> so good. That, that, is, that is a problem. You have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when, the, you know, the second game, I think Lotus 2, the series really got into its stride then and that, you know, that fans generally considered that the best, you know, from what I see these days. How did kind of getting a follow-up to that game, what, what were you kind of thinking in the, in the second game? What was the, the thought behind improving the original? It, it's always a case of endeavouring to add more features into the, into the products, looking at the, the car handling, etc., um, the, the types of uh, uh, surfaces you're driving on and the terrain, etc. And I, I think we did a, we did a pretty, good, pretty good job of give, giving the consumer a, a really varied type of game as far as racing is concerned. And it was building on. It, it was a case of building on the first one. I think it was more icing on the cake than anything else. 
Well, I remember one amazing feature about that is you could actually link up like two Amigas. You know, it was kind of like early. Or an Amiga and an ST as well. Yeah, it was yeah. Like, yeah. early yeah, online gaming. Actually, yeah. yeah. No, that, that, was, that was one of the features. It was something that uh, I'm not sure what product we'd identified that had come up in that we thought, no, this, this should work on Motus. Um, I'm not sure how many people played it in that way, but uh, it was a good feature to have in there. It's another, it's another selling point at the end of the day. Um, what was the thinking of the third one? Because it, it was a lot more advanced, you know, graphically, um, but it didn't seem to get as high praise as uh, the second. I, th- I think it, I think the, the issue you've got there is you didn't really have any more processing power. You, it, although programmers were getting smarter as far as how they tweaked the processors and, and, and got smoother smoother running graphics, etc., there wasn't a great deal more that we could do with the game. You know, I, I think may, maybe maybe we should have stopped at two um, and not bothered doing the three. Um, but hey ho, you know, there was uh, there were other products that were coming through the competing at that time. It got very very competitive at that time as well, as far as product was concerned. Well, another great racing game that you guys made was uh, Supercars, and it kind of spun off a whole genre of uh, above view like mini racing games on the Amiga. There was tons of clones of supercars, I remember. And that was another, that was another Magnetic Fields product. You know, we had, a, we had a working relationship with Magnetic Fields, and we worked really well together. Supercars was, was one of those that, uh, you know, again, really, really appealed. Lots of features, great fun to play. Well, the second game, I mean, Supercars 2, that was lots of fun. It introduced stuff like a multiplayer and extra weapons and graphics and sound. Um, I mean, I imagine, that, did that get played a lot in the in the Gremlin office, I imagine, that title? Probably too much. <laughs> it was it was one of those uh, lunch breaks that overspilled into mid-afternoon. Yeah, plenty of testing, let's put it that way. But it was it, it was one of the favourite games, games in the office, without a doubt. It's a crack the whip and like, do some work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we... Gremlin was always a, a reasonably relaxed place to work because people knew that the job had to get done. You know, if they took longer over their lunch, then, you know, they tended to work later into the evening. So it was, uh, it was give and take as far as that was concerned. Well, another amazing title was Top Gear. And um, it's still, like, number one Mega Drive game in Brazil. Like, Barry Leach <laughs> will go over to Brazil and perform massive concerts to all of the guys and they'll all be doing Top Gear themes on their guitars. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, was, but Top Gear really spun out of the Lotus game. We were working with a Japanese company called Kemco. They wanted a different branding on the game. Yeah, that, that was the, it was the name that they chose um, to, to actually go on that, uh, on that product. Top, Top Gear was popular. Not for not for any reason that it's uh, a BBC television programme. So I don't think it was very popular at that time. But uh, yeah, it was, it was quite quite big in Japan as well. Well, obviously, when we got into that era, I mean, you know, when Sonic the Hedgehog came out, and we had Mario before that. In the 16-bit era, there was kind of a war of the mascots, and then Zool came around. So, what was the thinking of Zool? Was that the need to have a mascot? I well, that was our intention. I leave it for others to decide as to how successful we were. Really. It was my it's my favourite character of of my whole sort of Gremlin career. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's quite dear to my heart. Anyone listening out there that wants to do a Zool game, get in touch with me. <laughs> oh, please do. I'd love to see Zool getting updated. <laughs> I well, I, well, I would as well. I would as well. I'd, I would uh, I, I would relish that. There's lots of uh, 
uh, retro products coming out there, and uh, I think there could there could be a, a a really good a really good Zool game produced now. Zoolmania could be the one. <laughs> Zoolmania. <laughs> one of your one of your questions was what you've changed in the character. If I remember right, they're looking down their list. Yeah. I think the one thing I would have changed was I'd have given him a mouth. I was wondering, uh, where, where did the design of Zool come from then? What, what was he originally meant to be? What was like the concept? He was an alien ninja from the Ant's dimension. You need to read the inlay. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember all the magazines would call him an ant, and I'm like, he, he was not no, meant to No, never an ant. Yeah. Never, never an ant. An ant has got more than four legs. That game was so impressive graphically for the Amiga. You know, it was far beyond a lot of games that were out at the time, platformers. Um, did it take a lot of resources and kind of effort to get that out? It took a lot of effort from a small number of people. Yeah, um, Aid, Aid Carlis was uh, the lead designer on it. I worked with, with Aid on the character, etc., and uh, spent many hours sit, sat down looking at uh, how, how we, you know, the, t- the types of levels we designed, etc., and what the character can do, what he can't do. And it was a case of designing the game about around what the character could do and what we made him do at the end of the day. Well, everyone at school like loved that game. All the kids that had Amigas. And like we just after school, we played for hours and hours. And I remember a lot of the magazines kind of got behind Zool as like they called him like, you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog killer, didn't they? I mean, did, did you kind of like that hype? And uh, how did you feel about it? Yeah, well, we had a T-shirt, which um, I don't know if you've seen it, Bad News for Hedgehogs. Yes, I do remember that. With Zool smashing through the screen, yeah. No, we 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 played on that as much as we we could. We obviously didn't have the uh, the, <laughs> the marketing clout that say you had for Sonic, and you can't, you know, coming up and going up, up against the types of teams they must have had creating the Sonic product. Um, that was a tough ask, but I thought we did a really good job. Well, I mean, it's quite interesting because a lot of people do remember it as an Amiga title, but it, it did come out on the Mega Drive as well, didn't it? So, did, did say you have did, anything yeah. to say about that? Um, no, 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 not at all. Mm. No, no I, I still think it's it's most successful platform as the Amiga by far. I think the uh, the Mega Drive users scoff, scoffed at the uh, Amiga character. Well, I remember there was an arcade machine as well, wasn't there? That, that never got released, did it? Or my uh, oh crikey! Um, I think some went out, but it, it was it was it was one of those times when the arcade. Some of the arcade manufacturers in the UK were trying to create their own product, etc. It, it was it was an experience going through that process um, and seeing what else what else we could do with it as far as because it, it's a different very different question about asking someone to continue put coins into a machine than it is asking them to play a, a video game. So you have to design the game somewhat differently. Otherwise, one person could be on it all day long. Well, uh, Zool 2 was a great kind of improvement, added extra character and uh, upgraded graphics. But the issue at the time was a kind of a a meagre market that was dwindling. Uh, What point did you decide to kind of leave the Amiga market? Yeah, it it was one of the hardest decisions we had to make because we loved working on the machine. Um, The market tells you when when you're, you're not achieving the sales on a product, you, know, you have to step aside then and, and look at the other platforms, which is which is basically what we did, and it was uh, PlayStation that we looked at from that point. So no, Zill 2 came out, and it was like CD32, and the, the Atari Jaguar as well, didn't it? It did, yeah. We, we put it on everything we possibly could. <laughs> well, another un- unique title was uh, Little Devil, which uh, the animation was so accurate. It was kind of like Earthworm Jim later on. <laughs> you know, um, it had that motion capture or animation capture. Uh, what was the process yeah. behind getting this all done? That, that product was produced in Dublin by Gremlin Island, 
we'd acquired a small business over there, a group of guys. And I don't know if you remember uh, the Don Bluth Studios. Some of these, these guys have been animators there. And if you look at the sort of Don Bluth graphics, you recognize the, the skills that are then applied to the Little Devil, Devil character. Well, the whole kind of package for Little Devil was fantastic. I even remember on the uh, CD32 getting stuff like newspapers and uh, all these items included in the box. It really felt like a kind of a, a, a complete massive game, that did. Yeah, it, it was. It was, it, was a, it was a real fun product to work on. And I loved the character. He was the real deal as far as I was concerned. He had attitude. You know, and, he, and he was funny as well. It wasn't massively successful, but um, he got some very, very good coverage. And it was great to work on, as I say. I imagine just because of like you know the platforms that it was out on, like the CDI and the CD32, didn't have a massive user base, it turned out, did it? So that probably went against you. No, we're at the back end of that market, really. Mm. Always difficult. Well, one later game that you know we'd like to touch on is um, the fabulous Normality, that which was you know a pretty crazy concept, but <laughs> it worked, didn't it? <laughs> well, I I think it did. I I'm that... not sure. That, I'm not sure that the public did. No, I thought it fit into that kind of 90s grunge um, kind of period. And uh, yeah. Violet yeah, Berlin was, was in it, wasn't she? From <laughs> Yeah, it was one of the first products that we'd, uh, we'd started using motion capture on. And I, th- I thought it really worked. I thought it was, it was humorous. It was graphically, graphically good. I, you know what? I'd, with products like that, sometimes it's all about timing. You know, although although the, the game did okay... It never sold that well or got the accolades I thought it was due. And it was a difficult time, wasn't it? It was kind of that, in, in that kind of mid-90s era, you know, it, so much changed, didn't it, around then, in terms of technology? Well, so much changed, and it was, and it was very competitive as well. Yeah, and, and even getting products onto the shelf in stores was getting difficult. You couldn't guarantee that just because you were publishing a product that the retailers would take it. I mean, in terms of, like, you know, your franchises, like Zool, for example, was there any plans to ever put that on, like, the PlayStation? But if I'd had my way, it would have gone onto the PlayStation, but uh, and I, di- I didn't always get my way. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> so it, it never made it. But the time, yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to mention about Zool as well was the kind of sponsorship and how that deal came around. Chupa Chups. Yeah. Yeah, or Shoopy Shoop, whichever way you want to say. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're, probably, we're probably responsible for ruining more people's teeth in the video game industry <laughs> than anybody else. <laughs> we, we used to send out great big pots of those things with, uh, to, to, all the, uh, to retailers and to distributors, etc. They loved us. Used to get for one in the box as well. well. There's one in the box for of about the game. a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think you'd be allowed to do that nowadays, actually. That'd be a carrot or something now, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> How did that deal come about, though? Because that was quite unusual for the time, having a sweet manufacturer getting a video game tie-in. Yeah, we'd, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the first sweet manufacturer that we'd embraced. We, we actually we embraced Chewitz with a game called Muncher, um, which was a bit of a rip-off of Rampage, I think. But uh, no, that, that was, it was a case of trying to, trying to find something that was that will fit into the world of Zool. And, uh, you know, the, the colourful wrappers that, uh, that uh, Shepherd Shops had and uh, their image was, was sort of spot on, really. And the two seemed to go well together. Um, and it was then a case of getting in touch with the, um, the Spanish company initially, as far as the licence was concerned, and then dealing with the distributor over in the UK. Was it kind of a, you know, did they specify that there had to be like a certain amount of them in the game or logos or anything? Um, no, no, I don't remember there being any 
any major issues. It, 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 there was just a case that we needed to replicate their logos correctly. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing really more than that. I, I think out of all the kind of sponsorship deals with the Amiga, that one fit the most because they had stuff like LucasAid on Super Frog and Quavers on other games, and it didn't seem to kind of mould, but Zool and Chubba Chub seemed to kind of work, they, you know. They just went together, didn't they? They, they really did. I, I'm sort of, uh, yeah. No, I, 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 whenever I think about Zool, I automatically think about Chubba Chubs anyway. It was a genius move because it's like, you know, to this day, that had more effect on, like, me than any TV advertising ever did. You know, <laughs> I, I play now and I want one, you know. It's like... <laughs> yeah. You know, I think a number of years years later, they were approached again by us and they, they weren't interested in uh, in doing anything else. But, hey, that's life. Uh, more fool them. <laughs> They're lost, I say. <laughs> well, one big purchase that you made in uh, 1996, Gremlin purchased DMA, which um, we did. must have been exciting we... to get your hands on such a talented team and products. David Jones, yeah, yeah. How did that come about then? Well, Gremlin at that time, it'd gone through a few changes and it was being managed at that time by Jenny Richards, Stuart and myself. And uh, we, we were looking at ways of, of building the company up and uh, and our idea was to take it public. And we, need, we needed to, to grow it fairly quickly and uh, we were looking for, um, we're looking for acquisitions, basically. We got to know Dave Jones Super guy, super talented, and a great team up in Dundee. Really, really uh, uh, creative team. And uh, they, they'd been working on um, the original, um, what's that, uh, that, that game? They, they you, I think it had a minor success, Grand Theft something. Yeah, I may have heard of that one, G- GTA or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> Well, obviously, that was, that was going to be my next question. It's like, you know, did you know about Grand Theft Auto when you bought them and how, how come you let it get away? Well, we, we, it was already, it, it was being developed for, um, actually, initially for Bertelsmann. And uh, we we, did, we had no say in it. They had a contract to produce. They, they'd sold the title to Bertelsmann, basically. And then subsequently, Bertels, Bertelsmann then sold it to Take-Two. So I'm afraid... I, I nearly got my sticky fingers on it, but not quite. Oh, that must have uh, stung a bit for a couple of years after, did it? Well, you know, it's you, you just got to look at it and say, well, you know, DMA still produced a fantastic product, and you know they were the the guys that planted the seeds for making Take Two many, many, many millions of dollars. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> as, long, as long as somebody, as long as somebody got the millions. As long as someone did, yeah, and as long as lots of players out there enjoyed playing it, that was the main thing. But no, it was um, that, that was a, it, it was a, a great. I I really enjoyed going up there and spending time with those guys. They they were so creative, and you know, a good number of them spun out spun out doing their own, their own thing now, etc. And obviously, you've got Rockstar that spun out from there, so they're still about. They're still still doing good stuff, no doubt. Well, what would you say is your favourite game from the whole kind of Gremlin era? Well, it, it's difficult to say because there were, my my time with Gremlin changed so so much over the years. Uh, initially, I was getting involved in game testing, etc., and the characters and what have you. And, and then, as the business grew, I was more about business development, and I, I still took a great deal of interest in the in the character designs, etc. And uh, it's got to be Zool, hasn't it? Really, it's an iconic game, isn't it? And my number plate is t- still. S two O O L. Oh, that's cool! <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and, 
and uh, I've had that number plate for many years now. <laughs> have, have you heard of the uh, Zool beer as well that you can buy? No. I think I think a brew house brewed up uh, one batch of Zool beer and the logo was just the eyes. And you oh, can oh, go really? there and have a pint of the I'll try and track it down and tell you where it's available. I miss I miss that one. I miss that one. I, I suppose the, I suppose this one is Zool. Like, you know, the, the other one that's closest to my heart really is Premier Manager. That's just you know, that still sells today. Mm. You know, it's it's on PlayStation store and I get, I get a little royalty check every 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 month, which I'm very happy for. And uh, so uh, you never know; you might see another Premier Manager game coming along sometime. Well, we need to talk more about that in a second. That's quite that could be quite interesting. I was just wondering though, before you know, we kind of tie up this era. I mean, why did you uh, why did you leave Gremlin when uh, Infograms took it over? Then um, I had a massive heart attack and a quadruple bypass. <laughs> so the, the yeah. time to, time to yeah. end it. Then. Yeah, yeah. That, kind of, that kind of slows you down. <laughs> Just a minor, just a minor issue. No, we just we just completed the sale hmm. um, to Infograms, and uh, uh, I was taking a break, and uh, I took my young daughter, who was seven, took her uh, skiing to uh, to meet some fr- friends in Salt Lake, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, yeah, top of a mountain. That was interesting. God. But that's another story. So that was the reason why I stepped back from Gremlin at that time, and apart from that, um, Infograms had had acquired the company. They'd made certain changes. Whilst I was off, they'd done some things that I wasn't particularly happy about. And uh, if, I went, if I'd gone back, it would have been to a different company. They wound it down about 12 months later anyway, didn't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Obviously, there's been a couple of new books come out. There's uh, Mark Hardist and uh, Sam Dyer also released one. Have you seen a new interest in Gremlin? Locally, yes, yeah. Yeah, I've been to, been to the book launch and... Uh, and what have you? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's nice. You know, the Gremlin is always for me. It's always been there. You, 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 if I, I still live in Sheffield, and uh, you meet people, and you've just got such fond memories for for products, and for you know, even going back as far as just micro, you get people in their sort of forties saying, "Oh, I used to come in your shop. I used to get told off because I was late for school or whatever." You know, or <laughs> <laughs> they were playing hooky. We used to have to chuck them out. You know. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's never gone away. It's never gone, away. and I don't think it will. For me, it will never go away anyway. Well, you're you're involved in that. Your company, Urban Scan. You 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 actually got some of the the rights to Gremlin games. How did that? Happen? Yeah, I I I bought a quite large tranche of the IPs from uh, from Infograms. So I, I own uh, uh, Premier Managers, all Loaded, Realms of the Haunting, Normality, all, all those those titles. The intellectual property is owned by me. So are there any plans to do HD updates of any of the classics that you now own? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do some, but I'm not in a position to do them myself. Um, I sort of stepped back from the industry somewhat now, and uh, um, I'm not as close to it as I used to be. You know, I'd be happy to talk to people who have got a serious interest. So what needs to happen then if someone's listening to this and they're like, I can make a new, new Zool game on the PlayStation or Xbox? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends who it is and how capable they are. <laughs> that needs to happen. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah, it's it would need to be someone seriously who has uh, who's got the got the finances to put in place to be able to do it. You know, it's it's okay. People are saying, "Oh, I can produce this game or I can produce that game," but you know, to be competitive out in the marketplace now, um, you need a fair amount of muscle behind you. But there are players out there that. Uh, I would imagine that that would 
be interested. Because it has maybe, been. A... Maybe even some of the bigger ones, I don't know. I mean, you look recently, and Ravi and I were talking about this on the show last week. I mean, you know, Micro Machines game got, you know, updated and Crash Bandicoot's been number one and I like the PlayStation. Yeah. So there is a, an interest in that era again. Now, I, it seems. No, I, I, I fully appreciate that. I fully appreciate that. As always, it's a case of timing and me finding the time to do something about it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Well, what were you, would you say was the uh, most proud moment at Gremlin? We won, a, um, from a Sheffield point of view, we won a few Business of the Year awards. One of them was presented by one of my heroes, which was uh, Michael Heseltine. For me, that was one of my proudest moments. Mm-hmm. I was proud to, to grow the business and to float it on the London Stock Exchange. You know, we ended up with sort of 300 staff. That, that made me proud. It was, you know, building the business was, was a fantastic experience. And uh, I think, yeah, I think Gremlin was one of the parties in the UK that the foundation for lots of really good things happening out there that are still happening today. Sumo Digital, for instance. A good bunch of the guys there used to work for Gremlin. Carl Cavers, Paul Porter and and, uh, and Darren have done a, a great job of turning Sumo into a fantastic studio. Oh, they're great. Um, we've actually got a Sumo Digital studio in Nottingham that's just opened up. So. That's right, yeah, that's right, by Paul Porter, here. yeah. They're, they're very switched on guys. I'm, I'm proud to have been part of the fact that it was Gremlin that kicked, kicked that off, that, that you know, gave those guys the opportunity. Well, you know, it's a fantastic legacy, and it, it, Gremlin have got these amazing titles, and these guys that came out of it and have gone on to do wonderful things afterwards as well. And, you know, for Ravi and I, getting a chance to talk to you and the games that we played as kids that we'll never forget. So it's just been wonderful talking to you, Ian. Thank you so much for doing that. No, it's been a pleasure, and uh, thanks for allowing me to drag up some of my... Some people find really boring memories. Not oh, at all. No, you gave us the opportunity to show off in the playground with all the Sonic fans, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's not an ant. Yeah. An alien ninja. A ninja, yeah. <laughs> Much cooler than an ant. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we, we, you need to watch out what's going to happen in the nth dimension going forward. Oh, definitely. And don't, don't, don't ask Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Thanks again for coming on then, Ian. Take care. Love to speak to you.